I want to take a few moments each night unashamedly and motivate you to give. Not just to give to our love offering, but to motivate you to grow as one who invests in kingdom ministries and kingdom opportunities. As you think about the characteristics of a revived life, and we're defining those in these days, a characteristic of the revived life would be a new enthusiasm for God's word and for prayer, a hunger to spend time with God, growing intimacy with God. An evidence of the revived life is to experience God's joy and God's peace, the fruit of the Spirit, those Christ-like character qualities. An evidence of the revived life is to serve and to love and to minister of our time and talents to others. And then again, you see it in both the Old and the New Testament, where God begins to move in the heart of an individual or a community, there follows a wave of generosity. This is an evidence, and it makes sense. If in the revived life, I'm becoming more like God. Remember, we're not seeking revival. We're seeking the reviver in these days. If I'm becoming more like Christ, the greatest giver, then I'm going to begin to demonstrate that kind of generosity in my heart as well. Turn with me in the New Testament to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, the 8th chapter. We're going to take a few moments each night and walk through a passage of Scripture that provides for us a portrait of generous living. What does generous living look like? What are the characteristics of a person who is living generously? All right, now, just give you some background. Paul was the founding pastor of this church here in Corinth. He's come through and he's challenged them to give towards a special need. The saints in Jerusalem were walking through a season of persecution, and they were hurting. So Paul is going to these Gentile churches that he helped establish, and he's challenging them to take a special offering. He's then going to take it back to Jerusalem and use it to minister to the saints who are suffering. It's a beautiful picture. The daughter churches giving sacrificially to minister to the mother church back in Jerusalem. Well, some months earlier, he had come through and brought this challenge, and every hand went up. We're all in. We're excited about this. But as the time for the offering approaches, his appointed pastor friend, Titus, who's now living and serving there, Titus is sending word back that they're not quite as enthusiastic to complete this project. So he's concerned. So that's where we jump in. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Now pause just a moment. I'm going to go ahead and put the text on the screen for emphasis sake. Now let me give you some background again. The churches in Achaia, mainly the church at Corinth, this is the south part of Greece. Quick geography lesson. Macedonia is the northern part of ancient Greece. The primary church there was Philippi. Paul has come through and received the offering that the Philippian church collected. And it was a significant offering. And now he's on his way south to the church at Corinth. And he's using the generosity of the Philippians to motivate and encourage 
the Corinthians. Now, it's interesting. As he's describing the, the, the church at Philippi, uh, their offering, he uses words, he puts words together we wouldn't normally think would go together. In a test of affliction, there was joy. Out of extreme poverty flowed generosity. Now, let me tell you something about these two geographic areas. Macedonia in the north, the church at Philippi, was an economically depressed area. These folks were struggling financially. Whereas Corinth in the south, a port city, was a very affluent community. Now, how interesting that the folks in the economically depressed area were giving sacrificially. And there was affliction. This was a challenging time for them. But in their joy, they gave generously. All right, he goes on. Pick it up at verse 3. For they, these are the Philippians, they according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Now, pausing in just a moment. I can picture in my mind, Paul walks into that house church there in Philippi, and they bring out what they've been collecting for this offering, and they lay it out. And Paul says, I can't take this. I know your lifestyles. I know your struggles. This is way more than I expected from you. I just, I can't in good conscience take this. And he says, they began to beg me. Oh, Paul, don't rob us the privilege of giving sacrificially. Don't rob us of this opportunity to invest in a ministry need, brothers and sisters in Christ who were hurting. Now, pastor like you, I've officiated a lot of offerings through the years because I pastored four churches. I have to be honest, typically where the begging was going on, it wasn't the folks in the pews doing the begging, all right? Too often it was me begging them to give. But what an interesting situation. The folks were begging him to receive their offering. Why? The church at Philippi, the church in Macedonia, was a church in revival. A church that was experiencing the power and presence of God and supernatural manifestations. The church in the south was a worldly, superficial, immature congregation. And one of the telling characteristics was in their attitude toward giving. All right, he's going to give us one more insight. Verse 5, then we'll, we'll pause. This was not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Now, here's a key difference. Why the folks in the north, the church at Philippi, so generous, the folks in the south, so selfish? He says, because the folks at Philippi had made a decision to give themselves completely to the Lord. They had taken seriously what we call the lordship of Christ. Here's our First, living, giving principle. And we're just going to go through this passage and pick a few out each night. But number one goes like this. Before you give any of your material possessions to God, he first wants you to give yourself. He first wants you to give yourself. Now, contrary to the way we typically think, giving doesn't start back here in the wallet. Giving starts here in the heart. It starts with an attitude that it basically acknowledges this. God is the owner of all that I have. You know, it says in Romans 10 that when we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, believing in our heart God raised him from the dead, we're saved. In other words, we 
come to Christ, we embrace the gospel, we turn from our sin, and we acknowledge Jesus as the Lord, the master, the owner of our lives. And now the question becomes, not what I want, but what does he want? You see, I I change hats. I take off the owner hat. That's the hat I've been wearing. This is my stuff. I worked hard for it. I saved for it. It's my stuff. I take off the owner hat, and I put on a manager hat. Now, this is a big difference between being an owner and a manager. Some of you, perhaps, are managers in a company. If a manager starts acting like an owner, that manager's going to get in big trouble. He or she might be reprimanded, might even lose their job, might even go to jail. Because I can't treat somebody else's stuff like my stuff. And as a child of God, I must make this transition. I'm not the owner. I'm the manager. All right, here's a couple of thoughts for us. Has there ever been a point in your life when you fully gave yourself to God? Have you acknowledged, indeed, the lordship of Christ? And I mean acknowledged it in the sense that all that you are, all that you have belongs to him. In Romans 12:1, Paul writes, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. As he's writing these words, he's thinking of an Old Testament example. We talked last night about the tabernacle. As you walked into that outer court, the very first piece of furniture that you came to was the altar, the place where the animals were sacrificed. Typically, they would take that animal and they would have to bind it with cords on the altar so that they could quickly and humanely put it to death. Paul kind of takes that picture, but he, he puts a twist to it. Instead of God dragging you and binding you on that altar involuntarily, rather what we choose to do as the followers of Christ is to actually crawl up on that altar ourselves, laying our lives on that altar, recognizing all that I am, all that I have, belongs to Christ. Have you completely surrendered your will, your desires, your possessions, your goals, and your plans to God? That's lordship. Take your keys out just a moment. Find that ring of keys that you carry either in your pocket or your purse. Find it out. Come on, pull them out there. I want to hear them jingle in there just a second, all right? I'm going to walk you through a little exercise. If you think about it, as you hold that little uh, group of keys there, those keys basically represent all your stuff, all your stuff. Aren't you got a house key on there? Find your house key for me. Now, I used to have a house key. I live in a trailer now, so I uh, I have a trailer key, and I'm thankful for that trailer. And by the way, it's not even mine. The ministry owns it. They just let me live in it. I'm homeless, but that's all right. Now, that house, the property, the clothes, the appliances, the furniture, who owns that house? It's not your house. It's God's house. Hey, I worked hard for this who gave you the strength, who gave you the ability, who gave you the the determination to be able to make those payments. It's God's house. Find your car key on there somewhere. 
I do still own a car. Whose car is that? Whose nice truck is that? Whose minivan is that? That's God's. Have you acknowledged again, Lord, this is yours? And so as you walk through those keys, you're acknowledging, Lord, that that's yours. You've got a place of business on there somewhere, right? Probably a key that represents where you work. But again, who gives you the strength? Who gives you the health? Who gives you the ability to earn that living? Now, there's incredible freedom in this. By, by taking those keys and placing those keys in God's hands, you are really freeing yourself of a lot of grief. Let me ex- illustrate. Next time you come out of Walmart, and some knuckleheads left a big old dent in the side of your car, instead of pitching a fit on that parking lot, you know what you do? You just step back and you say, Lord, would you look what they did to your car? And you know what, Lord? They didn't even show you the courtesy to leave a note. They just drove off. Get them, Lord. No, no, don't do that. (laughs) Listen, there's great freedom when you own stuff rather than stuff owning you. Owning you in the sense that they're controlling you, that they're using you, that they're robbing you of sleep. Own stuff in the sense that I've given ownership over to the Lord. Are you aware of any area of your life that you've not yielded to God? Has there been any point at which God said, I want that? And you said no. As Shane reminded us Sunday morning, you can't say, no, Lord, those words cancel each other out. To confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord is to say yes to anything and everything that he asks us to do. On your outline, your revival truth tonight goes like this. The revived heart is turning from pride and embracing humility. Now what we're doing in these first few nights is we're identifying obstacles Things that are robbing us of experiencing God's very best for our lives. We saw last night, it's a lack of understanding and responding to God's holiness. An unwillingness to take ownership of our sin, to confess that we might experience cleansing and forgiveness. That's an obstacle. A second obstacle that we're going to tackle tonight is the obstacle of pride. The posture of a revived heart is one of humility before the Lord. If you want a relationship with God, you must come to him on his terms, which means humbling yourself. Now again, I'm repeating that phrase. If I'm going to come to the Lord, this is the movement of revival. I'm being restored to the Lord. I am being renewed in my relationship with the Lord. I have to come to him on his terms. And one of his terms is that I must humble myself. Now why is that? Well, God himself is humble. Jesus Christ is the most humble man that ever walked the face of the earth. If I'm going to be like God, if I'm going to hang with God, if I'm going deeper with God, then I must embrace humility. Probably a verse that uh, you could almost quote by heart. I'm sure as a church that hungers to see God's 
reviving work in our nation that uh, you've talked about this verse before. Read it with me off the screen. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin and heal their land. What we have here is a pattern for returning to the Lord, a process for returning to the Lord. We're going to talk about prayer, seeking God's face. We've talked about repentance, but notice where it begins when you're willing to pull the trigger on humility. Now you're beginning the process of re-engaging with the Lord. What is humility? It's important that we get a biblical understanding here because our culture despises humility. It really does. And part of the reason our culture despises humility is because they don't understand humility. Humility is not having some kind of poor self-concept, always talking yourself down. Humility is not cowardice. It's not becoming a doormat and letting people walk all over you. That is not humility. Our definition of humility goes like this. Humility is not thinking less of you but thinking more of God and others. See, it's not about you. It's not thinking less of you, but rather it's giving God his rightful place of lordship in your life and then learning to be a servant to others. We base that definition on Philippians 2, 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Now, As I mentioned to you last night, I had the privilege of being born in the great state of Texas. As I travel across this country and introduce myself as a native Texan, I find that people have this idea about Texans, that we're arrogant, that we're proud, that we're boastful, that we brag all the time. I want to set the record straight. It's absolutely true, okay? It's just the way we are. We we can't help it. There's so much to be proud of. Heard about a Texas businessman who was in California on a business trip. Well, he sat down with his prospective California businessman, and in typical Texas mode, he began to brag how the uh, waitresses in Texas were much prettier, and the steaks were much juicier, and football players were tougher, and on and on. Well, he got up and he excused himself to go to the restroom. One Californian looked at the other and said, are you as sick of this guy as I am? He said, absolutely. We got to do something about this. How can we humble this Texan? He says, I've got an idea. I just happen to have a bottle of prescription sleeping pills. Let's knock him out and have some fun. So they put a couple in his tea. He came back, drank it down. By the time they got him into the car in the back seat, he was out cold. So the guy says, now what are we going to do? He says, I've got an idea. He drives over near where he lives, and there's a cemetery there. He had noticed that afternoon a freshly dug grave. So they drag that guy out of the car. They lay him out in that grave, and they say, when that guy wakes up in the morning, he'll be one humbled Texan. Well, the sun breaks. The first shafts of light shine into that freshly dug grave, He opens his eyes, immediately a little 
disoriented about his surroundings. He stands again, he takes it in, he surveys it, he climbs out of that grave, and then in uh, typical uh, Texan fashion, he raises his hand and he yells at the top of his voice, praise God, it's resurrection day, and a Texan is the first one out of the grave. (laughs) All right, yeah, I know a little bit about pride, and I know a little bit about humility, and let's see how we can grow together in our understanding. All right, take your Bible, turn with me in the Old Testament to the book of 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 5. Now, I don't have an easy way to get you to 2 Kings. It's, it's right behind 1 Kings, if that helps, but use that table of contents if you need to, all right? 2 Kings chapter 5. We're going to look tonight at a portrait of a man who had to learn to embrace humility. His name is Naaman. His name is Naaman. Start with me, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. 2 Kings 5, 1. I'll get it straight. 2 Kings 5, 1. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. And now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel. She worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, would that my Lord were with the prophet who was in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, thus and so spake the girl from the land of Israel. The king of Syria said, go now, I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, 10 changes of clothing. All right, pause just a moment. Uh, Let's take just a brief moment and, and think about who this man Naaman is. Well, number one, he's a Gentile. He's living in a neighboring nation, the nation of Syria. Now, at this particular time in history, God's people were in rebellion. And often the Lord would allow neighboring nations to come in and conquer them or take advantage of them as a means of discipline. And God allowed Naaman that opportunity. So Naaman would, read, would lead these raiding parties into Israel, and they would take all kinds of, of treasure and plunder, and they would even take people captive. So Naaman is introduced to us as a very successful man. He's risen up through the ranks. He's now the commander of the army of the king of Syria. He's called a great man. That may be a reference to his physique, or to his ambition. He's also called a mighty man of valor. Now, he's had much success on these raiding parties, and he's enriched himself. Uh, The description of the treasure that he brings with him there in verse 5, the silver, the gold, the changes of clothing, that would amount to about $3.3 million in today's currency. Now, that's just his traveling money. Everything's going Naaman's way. Most Americans would look at Naaman with envy. There's a sense in which Naaman exemplifies success as most Americans define success. Were Naaman living today, he might be first-string quarterback of your Kansas City Chiefs. He may be a CEO of a Fortune 500 company. I mean, this guy is a high flyer, a mover and a shaker, and he's 
risen up based again on his own abilities. You see, he, he learned through the years he could either bribe his way or bully his way, but he was going to get his way. Everything is going Naaman's way. Now, in the process of embracing humility, number one, we need to realize it is not your natural inclination to humble yourself before God. It wasn't natural for Naaman to humble himself. He didn't need to. Everything was going his way. He was extremely successful at his chosen profession had enriched himself, taken good care of his family. Again, most Americans would look at Naaman and say, good job, well done, you've reached the top of success. And sadly, as God's people, growing up in this environment that's hostile to faith, those same messages are imprinted on our soul couple of verses of scripture to help us realize this. Proverbs 3, 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. Now, I look at that verse and I see in my mind a seesaw. Watch. Either I'm trusting in the Lord with all my heart or I'm leaning on my own understanding. Now, the problem is because of our sinful bent, our default mode is to lean on our own understanding, to follow our instinct, to go with our gut, to trust ourselves rather than trusting in the Lord. Proverbs 14, 12, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Now hear me. Our default mode is pride, not humility. Our default mode is pride. There's a way that seems right. It seems natural. It's, again, the, the sinful bent that we have to deal with. It seems like the right way, but the end is death. I was serving in my second church just north of uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma. And this was in a, a small town. And so when I would go make my hospital visits, I'd leave my little town. I'd drive to Tulsa about 20, 25 miles and had to make that run a couple times a week. Well, I'm a city boy. I'm kind of living in the country now and, and learning country ways. Well, one of my men came and said, have you figured out the shortcut to Tulsa yet? And I said, no, tell me, because I'm always in for a shortcut. And he described it to me, and I, uh, I thought I had in my mind what that shortcut looked like. Well, I was leaving the hospitals, and so I was heading back. And, and I understood that this shortcut would take me by the house of a widow in our church. I was going to check on her, and then I was going to go on back to the church. Well, I'm driving along on this two-lane road. I'll be honest, I'm going a little faster than I should have been going. It's been raining. The pavement's wet. Before I know it, I'm cresting a hill, and there's a sudden realization I'm not on the road I thought I was on because that road dead-ended in about 100 feet. Well, a combination of my excessive speed, the wetness of the road, my slow reflexes, my car didn't come to a stop until I was in the middle of a muddy field. And I immediately kicked on the accelerator knowing what would happen if I stopped, but it was too late. I just buried those wheels right into that mud. Now, these were ancient times. We didn't have cell phones in those days. So I get out. I'm in my nice clothes, you know, and I'm 
walking through this muddy field. I'm mad at myself. There's a house right next to the field. I knock on the door. A lady answers the door. And rather embarrassed, I say, ma'am, I, I feel really bad about this, but I was going a little too fast, and, well, my car is stuck in your muddy field. She looked right at me, and she said this. We put a phone in the garage for people like you. People like me, I felt so dirty. Slammed the door in my face. So I'm walking around the house. Garage door's coming up. Sure enough, there's a phone on the side of the garage right there. All right, pastor, who do you call when you're in trouble? You call your deacons, right? They're the servants of the church. They're your buddies. They've got your back. When my chairman of deacons finally contained himself from laughing, he committed to come out, he and another man, and they pulled me out. Now, you would think that the deacons would want to respect the dignity of the office of the pastor, right? But somehow, by next Sunday, everybody in church knew my story. So not only did the Lord humble me, but watch, he taught me a valuable lesson. If you'd asked me 10 seconds before I hit the top of that little hill, what road are you on? I'm on this road. Where are you going? Well, there's a little widow. I'm going to check on her, and then I'm going to end up at the church. See, I thought I was on a road that was taking me one destination. And by the time I realized my mistake was too late, there are people in this room, and you are barreling down Pride Highway. And it seems right, because right now everything's going your way. But it's going to come to a very, very painful destination. Submit to the work of God in your life to teach you humility. Now, God loves you. God wants the best for you. Plus, he's committed to conforming you to the image of his son, so one of his agendas for you is to embrace humility. And if you won't do it voluntarily, then he's going to begin to orchestrate circumstances to bring you to a place of humility. Everything's going Naaman's way. He's in control. And Then he wakes up one morning, finds an ashen spot on his skin. He's contracted leprosy. Now, I, the scripture doesn't detail, but as you're learning, I've got this vivid imagination. I can just imagine him waking up, and he looks at the back of his hand, and it's just a little strange color, you know. And he, Like most men, he just kind of rubs. It'll go away. It'll get better on its own. But the next day and the next day, and it's getting worse. And now his wife's nagging him. So he goes to his doctor, and he gets the diagnosis of leprosy, prognosis death. Well, he's probably a good pagan, so he goes to the temple and he offers sacrifices to his gods and no change. The leprosy continues to grow. He knows that eventually it's going to consume the extremities and then make its way to the internal organs and take his life. And suddenly everything's changed. Now, it's interesting, again, how creative God can be in getting our attention and in teaching us humility. Maybe a medical crisis like Naaman had to walk through. Maybe a financial crisis that God allows into your life. Maybe a relationship crisis in the family. Maybe a personal crisis. 
and you find yourself in the grip of destructive emotions like fear or anxiety or worry or lust, and suddenly things are out of control from a human standpoint. I've come to believe this is one of the most challenging commands in all of God's Word. At least it is for me. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 Give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ for you. Here we are in the season of Thanksgiving. Amazing just next week. Thanksgiving Day. You're going to sit down your family around the table and you're probably going to offer a prayer of thanksgiving for all the blessings that God has brought this year. And you should be thankful. But thankfulness shouldn't end there. In all circumstances, in the crisis, in the pain, in the suffering, in the frustration, in all circumstances. Now, why does God tell us to do that? In my experience... People either get bitter or they get better. People either become resentful or they choose to be thankful. There is no in-between. And so in faith, I choose to give thanks, even for the hard things, because God is working through those things to accomplish a greater purpose in your life. My last church was in the Dallas area. It was a very interesting place to live. It was an affluent, a very affluent community. And so I was pastoring a church of very successful people, CEOs and CFOs and COOs and professional athletes and just very successful people who, by the way, had the same struggles that you're, you're having. One of the men invited me to a leadership retreat for uh, business executives. And I was honored to come along. And so we were in a retreat setting. It was a, for, for, for Christian businessmen and businesswomen. It was very interesting to, to hear the stories. Well, that night we were having dinner together. And the man who was hosting the event, he was sitting at the head of the table. And then there was a man sitting right next to him who was a personal friend. And then I was sitting next to that man. And I was just kind of listening in on their conversation again. These two men, very successful businessmen, talking back and forth. And the guy, the, the host, kind of looked over and he said, well, how did you do last year? And they knew each other well enough to ask that kind of question. And the guy kind of smiled and said, I made about $3 million. At that point, I was very glad he didn't ask me how I did last year. You know, it was a generous church, but I mean, it was minuscule in comparison. And then this guy and I, we started talking. And I found out that uh, he was an attorney. Actually, he was the head of a firm of attorneys in the Washington, D.C. area. And he began to describe to me how he would take his team of attorneys and they would fly around the world and they would broker these billion-dollar deals. And it was so beyond anything that I was involved with. And I, it was just interesting. And then he looked at me and he said, now, you're a pastor. I said, yeah. He said, can I ask you a question? I said, Sure. He said, I got this 13-year-old boy that's driving me crazy. Our marriage is struggling. Our home is in turmoil. Now, I found that incredibly ironic, that he could snap his finger, have a team of attorneys fly around the world and broker a billion-dollar deal. But what was God using in his life to teach him humility? A 13-year-old boy. 
I just gave him some parent coaching and encouraged him. What is God using in your life right now to teach you humility? It might possibly be the thing you resent the most. Maybe the very thing that God has brought into your life to teach you humility. Let's pick it up at verse 9. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh will be restored and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away saying, Behold, I thought he would surely come to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. To embrace humility, number three, you've got to learn to identify the characteristics of pride in your life. And they, they can be very subtle. Now, again, just as we have misunderstandings about humility, we can have misunderstandings about pride. Let me tell you the pride I'm not talking about here. I'm going to be a grandfather in January. I can't wait to hold that little girl and show her pictures to all my friends and be very, very proud about that. that that's not the pride that God is condemning here. It's a pride that we see in Naaman. Now watch. He pulls up in front of Elisha's house with this entourage. See, he's a very important person, a very powerful person. So he's got soldiers with him, and he's got this wagon full of stuff because if he can't bully his way, he's going to bribe his way, but he's going to get his way. And he sends words to, to Elijah. Elisha, and Elisha doesn't even bother to come out. Just sends his servant. We find out later his name is Gehazi. And the message he brings is not the message Naaman expected. Well, see that little creek over there? That's the Jordan. Uh, go crawl into that muddy creek and dunk yourself seven times, and the leprosy will go away. And he got mad. You just see him there pouting. He didn't even come out and greet me. Doesn't he know who I am? Go dunk in that muddy creek in front of all my men. Are not the rivers of Damascus far better than this Jewish muddy creek? How dare he? And it says he went away in a rage. There are root sins and there are fruit sins. What do you mean? As a pastor, I spent a lot of years helping people with fruit sins, anger, lust, critical spirit, unforgiveness. And then I began to realize that these fruit sins are being fed by a root sin, the root sin of pride. Naaman's anger was simply a manifestation of his pride. He wasn't getting his way. On your outline, the pride God condemns. Let's look at some characteristics. Number one, independent of God. Again, this pride, the pride that God condemns, 
shows itself with an attitude of independence from God. Well, preacher, doesn't the good book say God helps those who help themselves? No, the good book doesn't say that. It says just the opposite of that, that God rejects the proud and gives grace to those that humble themselves. And independence, I'm going to make this happen. I'm going to work this out. God condemns a pride that's, again, often displayed in stubbornness. Stubborn. I'm just going to stand here as long as it takes. You know what? I'm just going to ground that child for the rest of her life, if that's what it takes. I'm going to fix my husband. I'm going to get my, I'm going to fix him. I'm going to straighten him out. Those are all evidences of pride. Self-sufficient. Self-sufficient. I'm a smart person. Come on. I've got a college degree. I, I've done fairly successful in my life. I, I've got a good home. I've got nice automobiles. Come on. I, I can make this work. I can take care of this. I can fix this. I want to show you a little video clip from an old movie called Shenandoah. Jimmy Stewart is playing a widower during Civil War days. Now, He's made a promise to his wife that he's going to raise his children in a Christian home. The problem is, he doesn't really know what a Christian is. So let's see how that works out. Lord, we... What'd I do? Well, it's what you haven't done, boy. A man eats with his hat on is going nowhere in a hurry. Now, your mother wanted all of you raised as good Christians, and I might not be able to do that thorny job as well as she could, but I can do a little something about your manners. Now, shall we? Lord, we cleared this land. We plowed it, sowed it, and harvested. We cooked the harvest. It wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be eating it if we hadn't done it all ourselves. We work dog bone hard for every crumb and morsel, but we thank you just same anyway, Lord, for this food we're about to eat. Amen. <laughs> and uh, you're laughing because it's not you up there on the screen. Now hear me, church. I believe the pride that God despises the most is religious pride. When we take our pride and we wrap it up in a robe of religiosity... We say almost the right thing, but still underneath that exterior is nothing but pride, independent, stubborn, and self-sufficient. C.S. Lewis was correct when he observed the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, greed, drunkenness, all are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Think about it. The very first sin to contaminate God's universe was the sin of pride, birthed in the heart of Lucifer, created by God as the most beautiful of all the angelic beings, 
And yet in his heart he made a tragic choice, a futile decision to try and overthrow the triune God and usurp the glory reserved for him. And pride was born. And pride becomes the root, essentially the root sin that so many other things come from. Jesus' observation in Mark 7, for from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Now notice where he ranks pride. Pride is ranked right alongside sexual immorality, theft, murder, coveting, slander. It's described as an evil thing. It's not just that you're strong-willed. It's not just that you inherited your dad's stubborn streak. Stop excusing it and acknowledge it for what it is. It's pride, and it offends God, and it is an obstacle to you experiencing the very best that God has for you. Find so many warnings in Scripture. Proverbs 11, 2, when pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. How many of us have disgraced ourselves because of our pride? Disciplined our children in anger? Critical of our spouse? Heaping insult on injury? Refusing to admit it when we're wrong and we know we're wrong? We disgrace ourselves. That's our pride. Second warning, Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Reputations have been destroyed because of pride. Families, marriages have been destroyed because of pride. Churches have been destroyed because of pride. Disgrace and destruction are found in the wake of pride. We were in Rocky Mount, North Carolina last spring. We were in a leadership meeting, pastors and deacons together. We were at the end of our summit. The men were talking about things that God had been doing in their life. The chairman of the deacons spoke and specifically said to, uh, to Shane, I so appreciated what you taught at the Home Life Cafe, the family teaching seminar coming up this Saturday. And he, he said, I, I just, as you began to describe to us, again, a balanced, healthy parenting style, I recognized how way out of balance that I was. He was leaning way over to the authority side and not showing the affection and, and not showing the kindness and the gentleness, just the rigid disciplinarian. And he said, I so wish I had recognized what I was doing because now my son who lives in the same town won't have anything to do with me. I have no relationship with my grandchildren. And the Lord just prompted me and I said, brother, can I ask you a question? Have you ever asked your son to forgive you? That's just a grown man. Have you ever asked him to forgive you? Because we all make mistakes as parents, no question. He kind of said, no, I, I never have. He said, but I will. So I'm going to make myself accountable to you men. By the time you see me next Sunday, you ask me, 
that I go and seek my son's forgiveness. The next night was a testimony service, and he stood and he shared with the congregation, talked about the estranged relationship we had, he had had for, for all those years due to a poor parenting practice. And, and then he said, this morning, I called my son and I said, can I come see you? The son reluctantly said yes. So I went into his office. I looked him in the face and I said, please forgive me. Just began to list all the mistakes that he had made. Will you please forgive me? He said, my son stood there for a few seconds and then tears began to well in his eyes. He said, yeah, dad, I'll forgive you. And they embraced. And a whole new chapter of their lives began. Now, that to me is a happy, sad story. Happy because, again, a good ending, but, but sad because it took so long. He lost so much because his pride would not let him humble himself and do what he needed to do. Go back to that little diagram there. The pride God condemns, let's contrast the humility that God commends Instead of an independence of God, there is a dependence on God now. This person is consciously dependent on God. Let me give you a little test. Let's see how dependent you are on the Lord. Here's the test. How much time do you spend in prayer? How much time do you spend in prayer? Because if you're really dependent on the Lord, if you really believe that it's, it's God that makes the difference, you can't do it without God's strength and grace, then you're spending significant time in prayer. See, you know, too often, instead of making prayer the first choice, we make prayer the last chance. We wait till we've made this huge mess of stuff, and then we shoot off this, what I call, flare prayer. Lord, help get me out of this mess. Had you made prayer the first choice, perhaps you could have avoided the mistakes and the consequences that come. A second characteristic, yielded. Instead of stubborn, yielded. Now, you know yielded. You're driving along. You come to that upside-down triangle sign, traffic sign. says yield. What does that mean? If someone else is coming, i got to hit the brakes and let them go through. Men, some of you are beginning to struggle with the challenge that Shane is bringing in these days about being a spiritual leader in your home. You've not yet yielded to God and acknowledged that is your God-given role. It's your pride that's holding you back. And then there are some precious sisters in Christ in this room. And your husband has struggled in his role as a leader because you've not given him the chance. And you've not embraced the supportive role that we're going to talk about in the days to come. You need to understand that's pride. That's pride. A yielded heart. Instead of self-sufficient, Christ-sufficient. Oh, you take seriously the promise of Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You begin to cultivate this conscious dependence upon the Lord. You know, the Bible says to pray without ceasing. Well, that can't mean I'm to walk around with my head bowed, my eyes closed all the time. So what does it mean to pray without ceasing? I'm in constant fellowship with God. Lord, I need you. Lord, I got a decision to make. Lord, there's an issue here with my child. Lord, I need your help. There's, this becomes the first 
response. Lord, you sang it tonight. Did you mean it when you sang, Lord, I need you? Or were they just words to a chorus? Do they represent the true disposition of the heart? Final point, home stretch. Repent of your pride, humble yourself before the Lord. All right, we can't leave Naaman hanging here. Look at verse 13 with me. Let's finish it up. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? Verse 14, so he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. His flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. And he returned to the man of God, he and all his aides, and came and stood before him and said, Indeed, now I know there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. What a great picture. Here he is, he's He's standing on the bank of the River Jordan. I've been to Israel, and there are places it really is little more than a muddy creek. It's not all that impressive. And he's just pouting. And evidently, he's got a, a kind disposition because his servants are pleading with him. They call him Father. Is it a great word? All he said is just go and dip yourself in the Jordan. We've come all this distance. What do you have to lose? Okay, he marches down there, and he dunks himself, and he, and he comes up, and he says, Oh, look, look, still there. He said seven times. Okay. Down he goes. He comes up that seventh time, and he looks, and his flesh is clean. It's been healed. Think what Naaman would have lost had he allowed pride to prevail. Had he walked off in a huff, if he had allowed pride to prevail, not only would he have died a painful death, he would have died lost, forever separated from God. But because he was willing to embrace humility, even in front of all those servants and friends and family, God saved him. I mentioned to you these woe is me moments that we're going to have in these days. My first woe is me moment in a life action summit came in my third church. County seat, First Baptist Church. I was a young man and God had blessed me greatly. And I thought we need a life action to come because I need my folks to get right with God. And I found out I'm the one that needed to get right with God as that week went by. I had to acknowledge the fact that I was a man with unclean eyes. Isaiah had unclean lips. I had unclean eyes. I'd exposed myself to things that had robbed me of my purity. Made excuses. Justified. It was my little secret. And in those days, God convicted me. And I saw this was robbing me of my fellowship with God. And effectively being used by the Lord. The first thing I did was go to my wife. And men, that's always the first step. You go to your wife. And I confessed to her and I sought her forgiveness. And she graciously supported me. And then I said to her, I feel that I need to share this with our congregation. Now, you don't have to confess all private sin publicly. Hear me. 
don't have to do that. But I just knew that I needed accountability. I, I needed people praying for me in my position. And so that next Sunday, the Sunday after our summit, I stood before our church and I, I shared with them what I just shared with you. And I had prepared with one of my associates. So at the end of the service, I said, uh, I'm going to walk back to the parlor. If there are any men here, and you're walking through this same struggle, and you'd want to come along, and we'd just pray for each other, hold each other accountable, I'm just going to wait back there for a few minutes, and you just come, and we'll start to pray together. And then I, tend, I turn, and I, I walk back to the parlor. That was a long lonely walk. So I wasn't sure. This, this was a very well-known church, a very established church. I wasn't sure they would even want damaged goods anymore. I didn't know what was going to happen. I had warned Patty. I'm not sure how they'll take this. That long, long walk back to the parlor, and then it seemed like hours that I waited. It was only minutes. The service was over. The congregation was dismissed. One of the first men to walk through that parlor door was one of my deacons who walked over and hugged me. Said, Pastor, I'm struggling too, but we're going to get through this. And then another and another. In a few moments, 65 men were standing in a circle in that room, crying and praying and committing to hold each other accountable. Thankfully, I had a church that was gracious and forgiving and supportive. I had to humble myself. Read this with me. He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Tomorrow night, we're going to talk about grace. How dependent we are on the grace of God. But before you can begin to experience the fullness of God's grace, you've got to deal with your pride. Because God rejects the pride. You know, guys, I get this picture of the Heisman Trophy. God says, I'm not going to have anything to do with you. you. You don't need me, all right? Let's just let you try it for a while and see how that goes. He opposes the proud. He gives grace to those who humble themselves.